Oh, no. Major glitch glitch. Yeah, you just froze as well. Are you back? You're back, back. You're back. Okay. Uh, carry on yeah. moving like this very slowly. So you... Good evening and welcome to everybody. My name is Mike Brampton. And my name is Julian Hode. Very much. And we are glitching terribly, folks. Because your video has completely frozen. This, I, I've got a bad feeling about it tonight. Oh, no. Hey, if, it, it's going to be fine. People will be very understanding. Brenda will be very understanding because she'll know we've tried our best. Hi, I'm Mike Brampton. And my name is Julian Ho. Welcome to Veterinary Ramblings. So, Mike, who do we have this week? This week... We've got an old friend of, ironically, both of ours, um, who has left the the shores of the UK to find fame and fortune in the United States of America. Um, a gentleman we, we know as Steve, um, but I think to his students, he likes to be known as Professor Stephen Divers. And, uh, well, Professor Stephen J. Divers, I think. Yeah, I think you're yeah. right. Professor yeah. Stephen J. Divers. And so, uh, Steve, Steve, a bit like yourself, um, he graduated initially um, with a Bachelor of Medical Science, Physiology, from King's College London, way back in 1991. I didn't actually know that until I looked him up, which would explain probably some of the links that I've had with him in the past, because I first met him when I was working with the training department of London Ambulance Service, which, of course, is all oh, yes. pretty much physiology. Um, and he then went on to take his uh, Bachelor of Veterinary Medicine from the RBC, and that was in 1994. He's founder of Diplomat of the European College of Zoological Medicine, Diplomat of the American College of Zoological Medicine, Diplomat of the Royal College of Veterinary Surgeons Zoological Medicine, Fellow of the Royal College of Veterinary Surgeons, and de facto Diplomat of the European College of Zoological Medicine. And all of that sort of stuff. And you and I know him as Steve. So let's get him in. He's in the waiting room. Steve. And here's Steve. Well, you don't look very animated there, Steve. Don't worry, I'm turning on my video. (laughs) Do you know, we, we are such professionals, Steve. Honestly, these days, it's slick as anything. We, within within an hour or two, we can actually be on and recording. It's brilliant. <laughs> well, it's only 3.30 Steve, are you only eating your dinner? in the afternoon here, so I know I'm supposed to have a drink, but you're going to be very, very disappointed because I'm actually having tea. <laughs> I've still got work to do, but anyway. No, we, we, we would expect nothing less, Steve. I mean, well, you're, you're the Brit waving the flag in the in the United States. Julian, I have to say, there is a significant lack of superficial foliage up here from when I last saw you. <laughs> it's gone. I, I, I was I was Mr. Curly Mop, I think, last time I saw you. You had loads of hair, and then there was a significant... I mean, it was yeah. you had a hard yeah. time trying to find an area that wasn't sort of follicular. <laughs> and now it's like, it's all... Although Mike's not doing too much better on top either, to be fair. <laughs> well, Mike, Mike's still got the beard. He's hoping that eventually he can turn his right. head upside down and uh, yeah. recreate a normal, normal head of hair. Yeah. 
Steve, that's got to be what, 20, 22 years ago, is it? Yeah, it's got to be something like that. Yeah, it's got to, I mean, well, I graduated um, 94, joined Eland, and I think you, what was it, 96 or something? That's right, 96, yeah. 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 1996, and then I saw Phil Lamette on your show, what was it, <laughs> yeah. a few weeks ago? Or yep. Yeah, our first boss, our first boss. Yeah. Yeah. That, uh, yeah, that took that that brought some memories back seeing him. Actually, he's grayed a little bit, but that was probably more to do with his daughters than it was to do with us. I suspect, Julian. I, I think it's all to do with his daughters. Probably, absolutely. Yeah, you yeah. keep telling yourself that, Steve. <laughs> <laughs> You've picked up a little bit of a twang there, Steve, haven't you? Um, well, it sounds more Australian than American. I, yeah, so I get that now. Whenever I go home to see my. Um, See, my family, my parents and my brother and my sister, they tell me I sound very American. Fortunately, the Americans still think I sound very British. And uh, <laughs> I, don't, they, I think that they're under the misconception that I'm like 322nd in line to the British throne. So that often gets me out of trouble as well. So I'm holding, I'm holding the cover sheet right. of um, a facsimile, I should say, a yeah. cover sheet. Of, of a very, very good textbook that, uh, that Steve has, has uh, co-edited. Yes. And it's, um, it's the Bible, basically, of, of reptile and amphibian medicine and surgery. Uh, Doug Mader uh, wrote the, the previous two editions. Yes, he did. He did. We, in fact, um, Doug, but, Doug and I worked on the therapy, which was like a, a, a current therapy version between the second and the third. But yeah, Doug wrote the first and the second. He edited that all by himself. But uh, yeah, so this was like, this is an interesting story about this, right? So this is like 125 authors. And anyone that even considers writing a textbook, I suggest you do it yourself. Because uh, trying, to, trying to herd 125 authors is like trying to herd a bunch of cats after dark in thick fog. I mean, it's just a nightmare. But I, I take my hat off to you, Steve. I'm, I'm editing a, a, a BSA. Oh, email there you go. Email. You're going to find out. <laughs> well, 20 authors. Okay. And, and that's, that's hard enough. Uh, no, mate. That's yeah, it takes, it takes some doing. 120. So what's wow. interesting, though, is what was uh, – so every author – Right, because they don't pay you very much for doing these things, right? It's a love. Mm-hmm. It's it's a you know it, it's a it's a it's a very altruistic sort of love thing that you do for the profession. You don't get paid a lot of money for doing this, but every author was supposed to get one copy of the book, right? And every editor, i.e., myself and Scott, right, we were supposed mm-hmm. to get eight copies. Well, Elsphere made a little mistake. Elsphere sent every author, 125 of them, each author got eight copies of the book. Now, each book is $180. Yeah. So when you do yeah. the math, Elsphere basically sent out a quarter of a million dollars of books that they shouldn't have done and then had to kind of clamor to get them back again. <laughs> but anyway, they've managed to do it. So I think we may have flooded the market a little bit early with this. We'll see. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll, I'll reserve my uh, my edition tomorrow. I will actually. You know, so what, what what's concerning me is that as you age, every decade there's something that happens. Like I remember when our twins and Julian can attest to this. We had there was a lot of partying that was going on. There was a lot of drinks going. In fact, the parties above the Elands Veterinary Clinic. <laughs> 
was fair Tory. Because I remember once Philip came into work and he said, I understand there was a party here on Saturday night. And I'm like, how did you know? And he said, apparently they were talking about it in the, uh, in the hairdressers in town. So at that point, I knew we had achieved some degree of notoriety. But anyway, in my 20s, you know, you could drink. I used to smoke. Mm-hmm. And then in your 30s, you know, that has to kind of be curtailed. And, and then you hit 40s. And now you have to be careful about what you eat and, you know, and stuff like that. And so I'm convinced the reason why people die is, is basically because people take away all the pleasures in life and there's nothing worth living for at that point. And so you might as well just pop up. It's true. It's like a man who goes to the doctor and he says, if I give up wine, woman, and song, will I live longer? And the doctor says, well, yeah, exactly right. Like so, you know, and I knew I was middle-aged when I, I think it was about 10 years ago, I was about 40, and I, I sneezed in front of the bathroom mirror and put my back out for two days. And at that point, <laughs> I realised that middle-aged is when I'm truly here. So, anyway. Have you given up yeah, the motorbike, Steve? We're, we're on the way out, aren't we, really? Well, actually, I haven't... Uh, I didn't acquire another motorbike when I came over to the state. came over in 2001, left the bike in the, in the UK, sold, sold the bike, um, and uh, the reason being is because they'd maybe take another test again. So I know, you know, at that point, I don't know. I just thought maybe not. I was getting to the now. I start. I'm more fearful. As you get older, I become more fearful of my own mortality. When I when I was in my twenties, it was like, yay, off we go. We'll bounce. It doesn't matter. But now I find I, was, I, I don't bounce anywhere near as much yeah. as I used to. Right. I remember going on the back of your bike. Really? Because normally they were usually more attractive than you. But anyway, but fair enough. Maybe you did. That's fine. <laughs> Presumably because I had hair, then you let me. Maybe, so, maybe. I, I was I was holding on pine. Every time I stuck my head out to see what happened, I was pushed back this off the there. And you kept on saying, don't lean out. Okay, okay. <laughs> you leaned out. Sorry, yeah. sorry, sorry. Yeah, a lot of fun. I did enjoy it. What was interesting, so when I came to the States, you have to do all these extra things. Like, so you have to d- learn to, you have to take a driving test and, you know, which is fair enough, mm-hmm. but the DMV is notorious for being slow and, and very inefficient. But I remember I went and did the theory and they said, right, you've got to go outside and a driving, you know, a practical driving test. So I was like, okay. So we go out in the parking lot, I get in the car, they say, right, drive to the end of the, we're in a car park, right? Mm-hmm. And we drive. Turn left. So I turn left. They say, okay, turn left. Turn left again. Turn left and park. Congratulations, you've passed. I'm like, you have no idea if I can turn right and you're giving me a driving <laughs> license. But it's kind of the way it is over here. But yeah, it's definitely a, a uh, there's a culture, a culture shift, let's say, yeah. put it that way. Do you do you like it over there? So I, there well, for, for so it's interesting, right? So there are certain things that I absolutely uh, adore. I miss my family. Family and friends is probably the big negative. British culture, you know, the going to the pub and that kind of stuff. I miss. So but we, what I've realized, we haven't done that. Right? <laughs> yeah. But what I've realized is that because I left in two thousand, I left in two thousand and one. I miss the England of 2001. And when I go back now, I don't quite recognize it. It's not quite the same place. You know what I'm saying? So it's weird. Um, But there are certain things like family, family things I miss. And I try and get over there at least once a year. Um, But then what I've got over here is, you know, I work in a hundred million dollar state of the art, you know, academic teaching hospital, and Mm. we've got all the gadgets and, 
I mean, you know, the caseload, the high referral caseload. So it's phenomenal. I mean, it really is. So there's, there's those kind of benefits. And I have to say now I'm in academia. I'd have a hard time going back to private practice. <laughs> Do you have pets? Oh, we have pets. Yes, we've got two cats, Tiger and uh, Nina. Um, and, and then I guess I have pets as well. I've got a, I have a marine reef tank. I have a 300-gallon reef tank in my office and a 55-gallon reef tank in my office. Wow. I emailed the building uh, manager and mm-hmm. I said, uh, can you tell me, is the floor of my office, is it like reinforced concrete or is it just, and he said, why do you need to know? I said, well, I just want to put a fish tank in. He said, well, how big is the fish tank? Well, a 300 gallon tank weighs, you know, two and a half tons or something. So, anyway, so I put my, I, and so what I did is got all my tanks in. Before the building officially opened, because it's in academia, there is a general motto, which is you ask for forgiveness, not for permission. And so I thought if I get these tanks in, they'll be immobile and immovable. And so they'll just accept them. And they did. But we did actually, I did, while putting it together, spring a bit of a leak. And so at the opening ceremony, the dean did make a comment about the fact that we'd already had our first incident with a fish tank leak on the second floor. But Apart from that, it's been it's been okay. What what sort of fish do you have in there? Oh, you know, like uh, Pacific tangs, uh, blue chromid, clownfish, those kind of things. But really, most of it is about um, is the corals. You know, the anemones, soft corals, uh, SPS. The whole system is probably it's a pretty expensive system. It's all computer controlled, so I can actually on my phone, I can actually show you that. Um, so this is in real time. Look, see, this is in real time. I can tell you the pH, the salinity. I can, can I can turn pumps off. I can feed fish. I can do all sorts. But it's the whole system's probably about 15, 18 grand, I would say. It's pretty expensive. Right. Wow. And is it is it easy to keep going once you set it up? Well, it's a lot of hassle to take it back down again, put it that way. I mean, once it's <laughs> up and running, you kind of just want to keep it going, right? So <laughs> Yeah, that could that can be problematic, but uh, mm. no, it's fun actually. I kind of enjoy it. Well, I used to have the tank at home, but I would spend so much time at work. By the time I come home, I'd sit down, you know, at the end of the day, and I would just sit down in front of the tank to admire it, and then blink, the lights would turn off, and it would be the end of the corals day. And so I decided <laughs> to move into my office so that every now and again I can just turn around and gaze at the mm. at the uh, undersea odyssey in front of me. You, you've swapped this undersea odyssey instead of doing cat vaccinations. Well, so actually, no, the replacement was that I used to do a lot of scuba diving. Right. And then, um, and then uh, I stopped doing scuba diving um, largely because obviously having a young family and stuff is still to do all that kind of traveling. So, anyway, I, uh, so then I decided, well, how do I get my, you know, marine fix? And so, uh, there were two two basically ways to do that. Uh, one is that I have a marine fish tank in my office, and two, Sunday night is now fish and chips night at the Dars household. So that's kind of our our approach. <laughs> this this is traditional British fish and chips. 
Kind of. It's difficult to get cod in uh, in Athens, Georgia. Put it that way. It's more like tilapia, breaded tilapia and chips. But it's fish fish and fries, though, isn't it? It's not fish and chips. Well, I've seen now that that true. If you describe it to other people, other Americans, I have to say fish Mm. and fries because if I say fish and chips, they're like what fish and then like potato, like crisp or something. Crisp, yeah, yeah. So, uh, but that, but you bring up a good point. So, I actually have a list of Britishisms and a glossary in the hospital so that the students, because otherwise they get very confused, because if we start talking about, you know, everything's going to go pear-shaped, you know, it's sixes and sevens or, you know, we, whatever we say, chock-a-block or whatever, all the students are completely confused. So we have to have some Britishism summary on the board so they can keep track. But, mm-hmm. but anyway, yeah, fish and chips. Otherwise, it's not cricket. Is no, it? exactly. You say you can't, you can't. So on the topic of cricket, you see. So I remember when I went over here, first of all, a friend of mine, Scott Stoll, the other co-editor of the book, we often would go to conferences together and we would share a hotel room. And, you know, as I, as I was now a, a U.S. citizen, I said to him, I said, you know what, you're going to have to teach me the, the, the rules of American football. And he said, okay, fine. Anyway, approximately six minutes later, that was done and dusted it's not a particularly complicated game and so then he said could you teach me cricket anyway two and a half hours later he is no further down the road of learning about the intricacies of cricket i mean it just just you know just wasn't going to happen but it was a game invented purely to foil foreigners that's that's the reason cricket was invented i think so i think so so uh there's a lot of work, isn't there, going into trying to um, engineer or, or sort of force the evolution of corals to live at higher temperatures and in different um, salinities, different conditions to make them uh, more robust given global warming. Is that something you're involved in, Steve? Well, so, okay, let's just be clear. I mean, uh, you know, coming, you know, the United States at the moment, our our Republican president, and uh, I'm from Georgia, which is also Republican, we don't refer to it as global warming, Uh right? We we refer to it, we refer to it as as climate change, because that sounds far less malignant. So that's kind of the term we should use. But to answer your question, um, I have not been involved. Um, I've done some work on some coral diseases with ecology, but not a great deal. This is definitely like a hobby thing rather than a work thing. Um, most of the fish stuff I've done has been things like, um, uh, well, let me think. We did some endoscopic gonad uh, evaluations and biopsies in endangered sturgeon, and we've done some um, sturgeon sonic transmitters and implants and implantations and things like that. So caviar for the, the masses, so to speak. Right, right. Yeah, that was on the Mississippi River. And I had these idyllic visions of, you know, Tom Sawyer and, you know, Huckleberry Finn and floating down the Mississippi with a straw hat. Let me tell you, in January, it's very, very cold. <laughs> it was so cold that we used saline. It's a saline infusion rather than CO2 insufflation. So it's saline infusion that goes into the body cavity of the fish. The saline was freezing in the line before it got to the fish sometimes. That's how cold it was. It was so cold. You know those hand warmers, you know, that yeah. you can take? when. So I'd have, I'd have hand warmers shoved in the inside of my surgical gloves, and you could do about one fish, and then you would sort of 
break your frozen tendons and put your fingers into your palm to warm them up again while they got the next fish ready. It was very cold, not pleasant. Was, was there a reason it's in winter and not in summer then? Well, see, now, see, that's where my, my ignorance of, of uh, you know, the ecology of the Mississippi, because I just kind of immediately made the connection of, you know, Huckleberry Finn, straw hats, you know, you know, flip-flops on a, you know, so no one told me it was going to be that cold. But, um, yeah, I don't think reading, uh, reading Huckleberry Finn, I can't remember a time where it said, so Tom went inside, got his muffler and parker. right. right. Well, and so the way that, and it was run actually by the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. So this was, it was more like a SEALs operation. They had these like, like fast boats. Everyone's in camo, right? Except the vets. The vets, they like to put the vets in a bright orange one-piece flotation suit with a bright orange clava on the basis that either we're an easy target if there's a sniper or if we fall in the water because we'll be silly enough to do that, they can fish us out more easily. <laughs> probably both of those reasons. Well, probably. probably both those reasons. You, let's admit it here. You wanted a camo suit, didn't you? I did ask, actually, if I could have a camo suit, and and I got one in the end. I think it was by day two. The first day, I felt like a large – I felt like a bit of a carrot, shall we say. But on the second day, I did get my camo. No, sir, no. Those are operational procedures. Yeah. <laughs> so you, you say you were doing endoscopy on uh, on, on this uh, on this fish. That, that that's a that's a real love of yours, isn't it? Endoscopy. I do like the endoscopy, and it's interesting because I actually started that with Phil's practice. Yeah. I know. At, I remember. Elance, right? You remember we were playing around <laughs> yeah, with that. Yeah. And it's interesting, right? Because you know, Phil Phil wasn't into it at the time then. But then he went on and got into it in a big way, and he became yep. the editor of the BSAVA manual. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. Yeah, he, he's, it's interesting. He's now the god of endoscopy in England. I know. The god of endoscopy in, uh, I know. In, in, in America. I remember. So I kind of, we, I think we tell the same story of this evolution that occurred in Elan from very different perspectives. I'm sure the truth is probably somewhere in between. Hey, I don't know. Can I share a screen? I want to show you guys something. I found a photograph. Oh, you've just can you, I promise I won't do anything risque, but I want to show you a picture. I know. Picture. Well, I'm sure I don't know if you're going to actually see it, Steve, but yeah, please, do, let's see if that's, um, hang on, is that allowed? You? Okay, here we go. Okay, can you see, can you see this picture? <gasps> yes. <laughs> this, this must be circa, <clears throat> I don't know, I don't know. This could easily have been when you were there, June. This could have been in 1996, to be fair, or, or 1995. I don't know. But that's, that's me as a new or recent graduate. And then you can see Phil there. He doesn't look much different, to be fair, right? But anyway, I found, that, I found that picture and I thought I had to show you guys because you had him on a couple of weeks ago. So. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah, I remember that. I remember that uh, operating theatre well, that prep room. Yeah. yeah. Great. Wow, fantastic. Fantastic. That's, that's brilliant, Steve. <laughs> I'm holding up, you can't, you can't see this, Mike, but I'm holding up an advert for, um, for an, an endoscopy training symposium that, uh, that, that Steve... Now, you have, have you organised this? Have you been asked to... No, 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 we do that every year. This has been... Since like 2004, every year we do really? a three-day course, yeah, at uh, UGA, and we've had people from we've had a, one or two people from England, but we definitely get we usually get a few people from Europe, 
We've had people from Australia, Korea, China, wow. um, North America, well, obviously North America, but also South and Central America. We have 16 people and we teach them the sort of basics of diagnostic endoscopy, birds, reptiles, and mammals. It's something that I, that I enjoy doing. And um, when you're dealing with these exotic animals, in fact, do you want me to show you an example? Yeah. I love yeah. that. We can chat about it. I can, I can show you. Hang on a second. This is inside. Okay. So, so again, I'm, I'm just, I'm just going to um, fill in here for the people who can't see this because Steve is showing us an endoscopic view of, um, of, of a, the inside of a red-eared slider. Is that um, uh, Pseudomyce scripter, isn't it? Almost. Trachemis scripter elegans. But that was a good stab. Well, Pseudomus, I think, was the original name. Probably back in the sixties, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> and so you're doing a, a salpingectomy. You're you're um, re removing the the ovaries and the and the uterus, essentially. Yeah. So basically, you know what I mean. And people love their tortoises in the UK, which is why I decided to show you some sort of tortoise. Uh, Chelonian pictures, but mm. being able to do these kind of surgeries now, we can perform salpingohysterectomies, we can remove uh, eggs, we can remove, actually we're, we're pretty good now for routine ovariectomy. We're doing this in sub-adult to adult females routinely before they develop reproductive disease. We can now go in through a soft tissue approach with the endoscope in front of the back leg, don't have to go through the shell. I mean, we mm. used to go through that shell. I mean, yeah, we made, yeah. we probably did some of those celiotomies back at Elans, and it's a much more traumatic, invasive procedure, mm. right? I remember mixing up the fiberglass for you. There you go. That's it, right? You remember? Yeah. Mm. So incredible. now we can avoid that by using these endoscopic techniques. And so, uh, so that worked out pretty well. So this was something, uh, this sort of endoscopic approach to re resolving reproductive issues is something that we, we developed in the clinic so we could avoid going through the shell. And then mm -hmm. here's a bigger example. This was a conservation project we did in the Galapagos. Okay. And so this is a giant tortoise. This was, and these, these, these were hybrids, so they weren't of any ecological – they weren't of any – conservation value from a breeding perspective, but they wanted to release these hybrid females onto the island of Pinkta to help engineer the island recovery because it was all getting overgrown because there was no tortoises on the island and they killed off all the, all the invasive goats. And so this is uh, just a video showing how you can take that 100 kilo tortoise and we can perform an ovariectomy without going through the shell. So anyway, this video is going to play, so you can keep chatting and we can keep talking. But I thought you might want to see that. This well, is excellent, absolutely incredible. And, and again, for the benefit of those, those poor people who can't see this, or, or, or indeed for anyone who's, who's covering their eyes because they don't want to see it, uh, <laughs> what, what Steve is doing now is making <laughs> making an incision through the um, the soft tissue in the essentially the groin region of uh, one of these huge hundred yep. kilo tortoises. Uh, and he's introducing a, a little endoscope, the rigid endoscope, and, and identifying the, the ovaries. Uh, and he's then using, I imagine, do you use the ligature on that? So I'll just, I'll just bring it forward a bit. So you go in with, your, with an instrument, and then you can put, you grab the ovaries in the endoscope to guide you. And once you've grabbed the ovary and you pull the first part up to the skin, then you can just feed out the entire ovary out through that incision. And obviously, the yeah. good thing, because this is a this field site, right? This is the, the, the Darwin Center uh, in the Galapagos. So we don't have a surgical theater. And so the good thing about sort of this sort of endoscopic or endosurgical endoscope-assisted approach 
is that everything which is exteriorized is removed, right? Mm. You're not putting anything back. Whereas if you opened up the sea loam, you could imagine you could get a lot of contamination uh, of all the other viscera. But look at the size. That's one ovary. That's huge. Massive. About the size of... uh, it's like a, a, a bunch of grapes, but the grapes in this case are tangerines. <laughs> They're almost tennis ball size, game. aren't they? Some of those. Mm. Yeah, some of them yeah. are like, yeah, three, two, three centimeters in diameter. Yeah. And so when you think we were doing about, we did about 39, 40 tortoises over about three, four days. So we're not using ligature, we're using radio surgery I here see, with yeah. hemoclips. Yeah. And, um, but I was like, uh, we're removing all this egg material. I was like, we must be able to come up with some kind of like recipe, like a Galapagos flan <laughs> or, a, or a key lime pie or, you know, a, a something you would think. But yeah. Um, yeah. apparently we were worried. I mean, you'll see this is one ovary going into the bucket and we had sort of bucket buckets of Galapagos ovaries. But um, so that's just that was just a nice conservation technique that mm. was developed from what we learned as clinicians, you know, in the hospital, on the hospital, dealing with people's pets. Gosh, it's absolutely incredible. I'd never, <laughs> I'd never tire of looking at endoscopic stuff. I, I wonder how squeamish some of our viewers are. But oh, um, that's push. Let's find out. Anyone that vomits, vomits, please leave a comment on the Facebook page. (laughs) Brenda, if you're watching, Brenda from Burton, if you're watching this, please vomit away, old girl. All right, now look at this. Now, this, now, here's a good thing about global, not global, not a good thing, but here's an issue with global warming. A lot of these, all these Chelonians have temperature dependent sex determination, right? They're not genetically determined to be male or female. It's the incubation temperature of the egg. So if the temperatures start to warm up, we're going to skew the ratios of our turtles and tortoises, right? So this was a project where they needed us to do a gender ID. And so what you're looking at here on the right, this is an endangered Asian box turtle. It's, um, uh, it is a Carora flavomarginata, and it's, it weighs about 10 grams. So that's just under half an ounce for those of you outside of the scientific community. <laughs> 10 grams is about the size of a small egg. Yeah. So that's the stomach here. And then you can see the liver. It looks pale because it's really absorbed its yolk sac. Mm-hmm. And as we go cordally, you can see lung. And this is the intestinal tract down here. That's mm-hmm. actually Myrtle's diverticulum. That's where the yolk sac was attached. And then this is the gonad. And so you can now see that this is a very immature ovary. Right? You see that? Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Gosh. And then actually, as we get in closer, um, to give you some idea of the visual sort of acuity you can get with this equipment, you can now see the individual erythrocytes coursing through the capillaries. Oh, my goodness. So you can. (laughs) So that's going from like, you know, a 100 kilo tortoise to a 10 gram tortoise. (laughs) This is incredible, Steve. Amazing. Well, do you want me to show you another one? Are you bored? Do you want to go? What do you want to talk about? I couldn't get bored at all with this. This is a um, a Gia Prairie Falcon. So this is a a nice um, falconry bird, and it Mm -hmm. was diagnosed with um, aspergillosis, so common fungal condition. There's the radiograph of the bird. They put it on the antifungal, but it got worse. And now you can see this big granuloma just here, and it's right over the heart base. 
So the question so, is, is how do again, you get... Sorry, sorry Steve, for the, for the listeners. Go on. So Steve's showing us some radiographs, and in, in the lung field, there's a rather hazy lump. Uh, it's probably the best way of describing it to, to, uh, to the lay viewer. And that hazy lump is caused by chronic inflammation and infection within that lung. And it's stopping the lung from inflating properly and stopping the parrot from being able to, to breathe uh, adequately. So, sorry, carry on. No, okay. So, it's how a, do you falcon, get... It's a falcon, Julian. Yeah, it's a falcon, Julian, well, sorry, not a, a parrot. <laughs> I, I, I was going to let that slide, Mike, but obviously he weren't going to. That's fair enough. Beautiful but plumage. How do you get... Yeah, exactly. Fjords, I understand. It's oh, not yeah. dead. Um, but... Uh, how do you get access to this, right? And so some people have tried to try and get access to this area. You have to think about removing the keel. And there is a very world-renowned surgeon who's actually attempted to remove the keel from birds to get to these sites, and they've all expired. It's not been successful. So I want to show you a video, and this is an endoscopic video. And so you can see the lung here. Mm -hmm. You can see this beating down here, which is the heart. And on top, this is this granuloma, this mass. And so we're yep. using an endoscope to go in and actually debride and remove. And I'm not only going to do this quickly, but just show you breaking down that membrane and then getting access to this infection and being able to remove it. And so this has been really, I think, you know, I, I'm a bit embarrassed really that how come endoscopy and endosurgery was developed for huge hulking you know 70 80 kilo humans i mean whereas when you're dealing with something that weighs you know grams or maybe a, a kilogram or two at most the endoscopic techniques make far more sense so you can see this actually isn't me now this is my resident um i'm actually just the camera holder on this particular case she's a third year resident so she's at the end of a training program so at this point we let them do and take more of a lead. But you can see now she's removing the infection. Yeah. And it's going to yeah. come out. And gen so anyway, that's, you know, I just wanted to share with you guys a couple of examples of those sort of endoscopic techniques. But, Absolutely um, amazing. And, and did, the, did the falcon do well? Well, Julian, if, I'm not going to show you a video of an animal that basically expired like immediately after surgery, am I? I mean, I, I mean, I have those cases, but I thought you'd prefer to see a success story. I prefer to see one. What I meant was, did it, uh, did it need much in the way of ongoing treatment? So, yeah, so what's interesting is that birds, well, all animals, right, humans included, right, we tolerate these minimally invasive endoscopic approaches much more readily easily than a traditional surgery you have a person that goes for laparoscopy they're up and they're out hospital the next day you do a major x lap and that person's in hospital for five six days and it's the same thing at the for um let me take that off now it's the same thing um for all these and so they we find when we do these endoscopic procedures the birds the rabbits, the tortoises, they recover so much quicker. Their hospitalization is reduced and they re re uh, respond um, quickly. A good example would be um, rabbits. So I do all my rabbit um, sterilizations now. The females are all done laparoscopic ovariectomy. And those animals bounce back very, very quickly. So Now, here's an interesting thing. Uh, I thought the view was that you had to do an ovariohysterectomy in rabbits because of the rate of development or the risk of development of uterine adenocarcinoma. So if you remove 
remove the area before the animal reaches about, well, probably before a year of age, but we're a little bit more conservative. So we say, as long as we do it before nine months of age, we just perform a laparoscopic ovariectomy. And of the dozens and dozens and dozens that we've done over the last sort of eight years, 10 years, we've never had any come back. And I think the same thing, actually, I don't know. Actually, I'll ask you this question. What about um, the, the, the bitch, the female dog? Is it still recommended to do an ovariectomy or an ovarian hysterectomy? It's, it's a bit of a heated debate. And I'm going ah, to okay. in the field. For the last 10 years, I've done purely ovariectomies. Right. Uh, and for the last three years, that's been uh, laparoscopic. Right, exactly. And that's, I think that's the important point is and we have those same debates in the US, but there's been, I mean, if you look at the peer-reviewed literature, there is no doubt that a, that, that a laparoscopic ovariectomy is the procedure of choice if you can do it. And um, the whole concept of getting uterine disease, I think, falls away once you remove that endocrine component. I mean, it just becomes an involuted structure. So, but Absolutely. I do agree. I do agree that I wouldn't be doing laparoscopic ovariectomies in a mature, in an older animal, because I would be fearful that there could be pre-existing uterine changes. But we haven't seen it if we do it at nine months or below. But that's just another example of how we're using endoscopy as a routine part of the practice now. Yeah, we, we find it uh, when we're doing liver biopsies right. or uh, uh, general abdominal biopsies, uh, they're, they're day patients now. They're right, exactly. The, yeah, the same for, and what's interesting, actually, we recently published a paper in the VET record. I don't know if you saw it. It was an evaluation of the diagnostic uh, accuracy of things like, you know, history, physical exam, blood work, um, uh, imaging, radiographs. Um, endoscopy and biopsy for evaluating liver disease in parrots. And what was in one way concerning and in one way um, revealing is that it doesn't matter all of those diagnostic procedures, whether it's, whether it's history, physical exam, whether it's blood work, whether it's imaging, they were not effective at diagnosing liver disease in birds even endoscopy you would endoscope and you might look at the liver and you couldn't tell if it was diseased or not but the biopsy the biopsy was the gold standard and so mm -hmm. i think you know that's what we're learning in birds but uh, i know you've got much more reliable clinicopathology tests that you can use for dogs and cats but ultimately you're right. You've got to get a piece of that liver tissue for a definitive diagnosis. And that's what we now strive to do on a, on a more sort of regular routine basis. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, gentlemen, I do a lot of ultrasound. Oh, gentlemen, yes. Yes. I finally got you. You've got us. You've got us. Mike. Hello, Steve. <laughs> <laughs> so have you just been staring at a blank screen for the last yeah. 20 minutes? Well, the oh, last okay. hour. Yeah. <laughs> I was I was chatting to some of my some of my young younger colleagues at, at the practice the other day, and I was telling them that when I first qualified, we, we'd be down the pub, wouldn't we, over lunchtime? Uh, do they? Do people still do that? Do <coughs> no. people still go to the pub on a lunchtime? No, you'd never dream of it. See, so, that's the difference. I I miss England of two thousand, not two thousand and nineteen. Now, I must admit, though, I was never a big proponent of going to the pub, and it was always only on a Friday, because if we went for a beer on Friday lunchtime, oh, my God, Friday afternoon, that was, that was problematic. That was just difficult. It's just, you know what I mean? The energy 
drains out of you. And I can't yeah. drink anywhere near the what I used to. I mean, my fridge used to be full of Guinness, you know. And you uh, actually, you were a single malt person, if I remember correctly. McKellen? And, and Talisker. Talisker. That's it, Talisker. <laughs> other, other malts are available. But right. Steve, do you remember that guy uh, drove to the practice because he'd found a snake crawling up his leg while he was driving? And so he phoned you and said, if I bring it to the practice, if I carry on driving to the practice, we identify it. I, I take your word for it. I, obviously, there were so many unidentified snake stories that I can't pinpoint that precise one, but that doesn't surprise me. I mean, You, you I always do, used to say um, there's no such thing as a reptile immersion. That's true. Still stand on that. I still maintain that. I still maintain that it's pretty tough to convince me that I need to go in and see a reptile at 2 o'clock in the morning. You'd say to someone, okay, it sounds really urgent. I'd recommend you put a first-class stamp on this one. Yeah, yeah. We should see it probably by a week on Tuesday. <laughs> now, the, but the, or what usually happens is they're like, oh, it is an emergency. Um, it is an emergency because uh, it stopped breathing. And so they actually bring it in in the final throes of life, you know. Or mm. actually, even sometimes, you can actually get the odor of... Of, of death that's been percolating for several days when they bring it in. So, mm. I mean, sometimes they just wait a little bit too long. Mm. They do. Although I do remember someone sent you, was it a python uh, for a post-mortem? And he started doing the post-mortem and realized it was still alive. And so... So their hearts keep going. So they can actually be dead. You can actually have a completely dead snake. You can decapitate it, but its heart might keep beating for like a day or two. Yeah, it's, it, it can be a little off-putting to the less seasoned reptile pathologist, <laughs> put it that way. Although I did have one situation. I mean, obviously, we never did venomous snakes in the UK, but in the US, we, you know, we see venomous snakes. And so there's a, you know, my approach is that you have to be, you have to be inappropriate to get bitten by a, a venomous snake, right? You're, you're doing something wrong to put yourself in that position. To get envenomated by an unconscious, anesthetized snake, obviously is, indicates that there are probably greater problems with your abilities. But I have actually had one case where a pathologist got evanimated by a snake that had been dead for three days. And I don't think there's any hope for those sorts of individuals. I just don't know what you're supposed to do. <laughs> I love the way you flip your mic up around your glasses there to have a drink there, Steve. So was the, well, yeah, was the, the pathologist up. okay? Oh, yeah, it was fine. I think they were just more embarrassed. And then, um, well, actually, so I got, I actually did get bitten by a beaded lizard once. Actually, there's been a few stories. I've been chased by a bison I got bitten or I got, I got bitten by a beaded lizard. I, so you, we had this group of beaded lizards come in and so I'm working with residents. I'm like, I'm going to grab it. Right. Mm. You have, you kind of, you have to be quite sort of, well, somewhat stupid to get bitten by a beaded lizard. They're not like really rapid, you know, like a mistake. They don't strike, you know, they kind of wander over, they sort of grab and then they chew on you a little bit. You know, it takes a lot of effort to get envenomated mm. by a beaded lizard. So I'd grab the lizard and then I get my resident to, you know, wrap up its head to, you know, as a kind of a uh, muzzle. And then we'd inject it and uh, ketamine, metatomidine or dexmedetomidine, and then we could work on it. So I grabbed this beaded lizard. My resident at the time, she wraps up its mouth. And I'm like, is it wrapped up? You, yes. Are you sure? 
Oh yeah, it's absolutely wrapped up. It's secure. And then the animal suddenly moves and I, I basically caught my finger on one of its teeth. So it was more a case of I pulled my finger against a, 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 its tooth rather than I actually got bitten. But anyway, it starts, you know, it's like with reptiles. They, they, you bleed quite profusely from their little razor-sharp teeth. So blood starts dripping. And then, you know, my technician is like, do I need to get the car and take you to the hospital? Um, and the student says, but hang on a second, Dr. Dubbers, I thought you said you'd have to be stupid to get bitten by a beaded lizard. So, <laughs> but anyway, it was fine. It was just like one of those little things, but yeah, we have a few stories like that. And so they're actually venoms then? Yeah, they are. Uh, they're native, actually. We have native... Um, we have a few... Yeah, we, that's the one thing I miss. The relationship that people have with wildlife is quite different in the UK compared to the US. I mean, don't get me wrong. We have a lot of good Samaritans that will bring in injured wildlife, but there is a lot more um, hunting that occurs in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Um, rebis in the U.S. So that kind of creates a little bit of a, a, a separation, I think, between people wanting to get involved. And then we also have certain things like, you know, venomous snakes. So we have copperheads. If you get bitten by a copperhead, that's going to ruin your day. And if you get bitten by a rattlesnake, it's probably going to ruin your entire weekend, if not the rest of the week. Um, so we have those things. And, they, and we have some rather nasty bugs that give you a bit of a nip. So there's a few things to watch out for. But, um, yeah, so copperheads, rattlesnakes, cotton mouse, those are the kind of main ones we see in Georgia. Hmm. So we and get dogs. About- dogs quite frequently come in, having been bitten, and have to have the, um, the anti-venom. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And what about the, the reptiles? Are they, are they more of a knowledgeable bunch than they are in... Uh... I'm not, I'm not dissing the, the <laughs> I was like, there's a, I'm like, I'm watching Julian but, dig himself a hole here. And I'm like, should I interject? I'm like, no, keep going, Julian. This is comedy at its best. <laughs> I stand by that actually, because the number one problem we see as, as vets in this country with, with our reptiles is poor husbandry. Yeah. I, I think, that, I think that's still true. Um, I think that we see, I think we we generally see some improvements, and, I, and I'm very protected, right? So I'm in the ivory tower of academia. So for things to come to me, they've already filtered out by first opinion practitioners. The financial restrictions have already been filtered out. So by the time people come to me, there's they're usually a very dedicated client and with uh, with resources. But yeah, we still see a lot of secondary nutritional hyperparathyroidism, metabolic bone disease. We still see trauma cases. We still see malnutrition. Um, and if, if they don't kill it before it becomes an adult, then we see reproductive disease and the consequences of that animal making it to adulthood, particularly females. So, yeah, we, see, we still see a lot of those sorts of issues. And most of it, most of it is ignorance, right? They just don't know. Uh, rather than it being any kind of abuse or any kind of, you know... Um, negligent. Yeah, negligent. It's more a case of, of you know, lack of education or, or they, you know... And the trouble is there's a lot of um, advertising. You know, you can buy those reptile bulbs and it says, you know, daylight. And people think, oh, that's, that's what divers meant. That's, that's that full-spectrum daylight bulb. And it's not, right? You know, and so there's a lot yeah. of those sort of marketing subtleties which is i think problematic so 
we often actually get now we'll ask people to take photographs and videos of their setups so that or if they can't bring it in but take videos and pictures and then when they come in we can actually look at um that kind of setup and that's very helpful and then our history form i think for reptiles and birds just the husbandry and nutrition is like three pages long so you know trying to get all those details because you're right if you can't find a predisposing factor in the husbandry and the nutrition then go back and look again because you're probably missing something mm. right would you ever you'd never see yourself going back into private practice you said earlier you, you no i must admit i do i do love it i love um so you know my like i said we got this fantastic hospital and you know we have we have a dedicated exotic um service so i have two residents and usually around four students and then i have two technicians as well and so so the day their day starts the students and the residents their day starts pretty early so like usually we're busy at the moment so they're usually coming in about six thirty, seven o'clock in the morning they're processing all the cases making sure everything's for its treatments making sure the medical records are written up and then i roll in about eight eight thirty and then we sit down and we have rounds and so we discuss all the cases and then we do our workups or our appointments and then to put it in perspective currently we have four appointment slots a day okay now those of you in private practice would laugh right but we have four appointments so you're saying you have four appointment slots an hour that's that's not many is it no no no, no. I'm, i have four appointment slots between nine o'clock and three o'clock in the afternoon or whatever yeah. and so and then um so we have appointments and then the other resident will be doing uh, workups and surgeries and then we reconvene. But, you know, we've got, you know, CT, we've got three T MRIs. We've actually got a seven T MRI available as well. We've got 24 seven ICU and IMC. We have dedicated pharmacy with pharmacists. I mean, it's just, it's just a wonderful place to work. Every, the people are phenomenal as well. And, you know, it's physically impossible physically impossible for me to get from my car when I park and get into my area of the hospital without having to say good morning or reciprocating a good morning gesture to at least a dozen people. So everyone's very friendly. Um, and so, uh, and it's nice to be able to do, you know, on hospital duty and then off hospital duty and then doing research. And, you know, they let me do things like write textbooks or, travel and lecture and so there's a lot of freedom so i would have a hard time i think going back um sure you know but um so no i do love it i mean i actually joke with my wife i said if we won the georgia lottery we won like 200 million dollars i would still go to work every day you know she wouldn't she'd be off like a shot but <laughs> i would still be going to work every day <laughs> You know, and I think that's, I think that's the best thing, right? I mean, if you can say that you enjoy your job that yeah. much that you'd go in, even if yeah. you didn't need the money, then yeah. you don't really work a day in your life, to be honest. Yeah. You enjoy the teaching yeah. as well, though, don't you? So I do like, I do like the teaching and, um, but my, um, my philosophy of teaching, I think comes from influences, particularly the British SAS. So my approach to teaching follows the British SAS, which is I psychologically destroy them and then rebuild them in my own image. That's kind of my approach. And, and of course, you pay attention to the, the uh, seven Ps. The seven Ps? The seven Ps. So the, the, the UK Army uh, 
thrives on this. Proper planning and preparation prevent piss poor performance. That says a lot for veterinary ramblings, doesn't it? <laughs> it does, doesn't it? <laughs> okay, but but the gin's gone up my nose there. <laughs> <laughs> We we better move on from that. I think I think we get into the stage that we could do the um, CPD certificate. What do you think, Mike? We, we we probably should do the CPD certificate at this point in time. I mean, wow, what an evening of CPD! Our, our, our regular viewers will will know that we um, uh, we, we are a CPD provider, and so Absolutely. as such, we give you a, a CPD certificate, and it's tailor made each uh, each time. So here we go. This is. Uh, a certificate of diverse CPD, and what we can do is we can actually cross off. The so hang on, hang on, just so I'm clear, you're telling me that people actually get—I can't. This isn't true, right? People can get a certificate, but they're not actually getting CPD for this, surely? CPD, yeah. This is CPD. This what, is approved. This is approved CPD. If people put this down on their RCVS. CE or CPD diary, they get credit for it. Is that what you're telling me? Yeah yeah, 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 and you guys have just blown that for 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 ridicule out of the water. I mean, yeah. I can't believe it. We try and top everything. So we got there. We go. CPD of divers, CPD. Today we've covered all sorts of stuff and shown incredible diversity. Gosh, aren't we good? And it's got him and me. And there we go. There's a, there's a Komodo dragon. Uh, there is. That is a Komodo dragon. We haven't talked uh, about that, that dragon. Looks, yeah. That's a chameleon. I'm trying to work out if that's a – is that a Parsons chameleon? I can't really tell. Or is that a Yemen? It's not a Parsons. It's not a par- – is it a, a Mayers? Yeah. And, and there's a picture of a snake. And I thought this was quite good because this, this tells us what we need to do to make this class as CPD. This snake is yeah. reflecting. You yeah. see? Okay. I, I don't know whether you have to do that in the, in the States, but we, we can't just – absorb cpd we have to reflect on it after we've been to a lecture or after we've read something yeah we, 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 can't, just, we can't just present it or or or, or listen to it we, we in the uk it it is required that you reflect upon the cpd that you've received or or given hmm. okay I can, I can do that okay There, that's um, that's me done. There we go. I reflected pretty quickly. CPD. I found that strangely, strangely refreshing. (laughs) It's nice, isn't it? It's It's pleasant. It sort of consolidated the whole um, of everything. I hope it makes sense to everybody. I'm sure it will. I think it would. If you have any questions, please direct them to Professor Stephen J. Divers. If you have any positive comments, please... (laughs) Send them to Mike and myself. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but, hey, Steve, it's been fantastic seeing you tonight. It really has. It's been brilliant. We, we, we need people to, to remember that you have edited the, um, uh, the new Maders. Yeah, let me, let, Julian, Julian, let me hold it. Let me hold it up because you're just you holding hold up that. something that looks fake. Right? So this, this is the Oh, actual, here we go. There you go. Yeah. See, that's the real thing. Third and this actually, this weighs just under five kilos. In fact, in some states, this is classified as a lethal weapon because if you hit someone on the head with this, that's it. It's all over. But that, that's, a, that's how much it weighs. All 1,500 
pages and a hundred and I don't know, eighty-four chapters. You, it's you a did good. Well not to have to slip into two uh, two volumes for that. Well, so that there was that discussion, but that that becomes that you know they don't like to do that if they can help it. They certainly don't like to do it. But the anyway, it's a it's a cure. You grab the book. You grab the book. You look in the index. You think. It's in the other volume, isn't it? Right, exactly, yeah. Always. Yeah. But it's a, um, I think it's a cure. I think it's a good cure for insomnia. And like you said, I think in the US it's $180, which means in the UK it's probably, what, £120 or something? Uh, it's a bit more like £180. Is it really? Okay, so it's £180 if you can get an unsigned one. If you get a signed one, they're only worth about five. So try and get yourself a, an unsigned copy, and it's uh, I think they're 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 worth their weight in gold. We haven't done the joke yet. Oh, there's a joke. Oh, oh, oh the joke. I always always tell a, yeah. a crap joke at the end of it. I thought I thought the entire hour and a half was supposed to be the joke. There's a, there's there's something in addition. <laughs> yeah. There's something in addition. Okay. All right. Now, Come on. I'm looking I'm, forward to this. Come on, Tony. I'll tell quite a, a quick one because we, we don't know what the internet's going to be like. But but I thought let, let, let's let's do something a little bit exotic. So right. I was going to do the joke about the snail who wants to buy a Ferrari, and he goes into the Ferrari showroom. And he says, "So I've saved up a bit of money. Uh, I want a Testarossa, and so that'll date the joke. And uh, I want a, I want a, a, a red Testarossa. But could you could you paint a big S on, on the front of it?" And the salesman said, "Well, it's your money." Paint an S wherever you like. Really? So, right on the back, yeah. Right on the sides as well. You paint a big S on the side. You paint a big S on all of it. Yeah? And the roof? Yeah, we, we, it's your money. We, we can put an S. Why, why do you want S's all over it? Well, because when I drive out with my new Ferrari, I want everyone to look at it and say, "Wow, look at that S cargo." <laughs> you know. This you just reminded me of a, of a client I saw with snails. I had a client come in. This wasn't at Elands. This was at the Exotic Animal Center in in um, in uh, in Essex. I had a client comes in, and you know, with a Tupperware. And I swear to God, this is true. She comes in with a Tupperware container, and I lift the lid off, and there's a limp leaf of lettuce, and there's a snail in there, and this woman proceeds to tell me that there's something wrong with a snail. And this, I mean, my, my level of snail medicine doesn't go beyond, you know, is it alive or dead? I mean, it was just, I was pretty basic, but she was convincing. She was concerned because she said the snake was lethargic and had a tendency to only move to the left. Right. And so I'm there in the exam room and I'm trying to kind of push this process through because I couldn't really, I said, and I, and I made the mistake because I thought silly of me. I thought this was one snail of a colony. Most people don't have just one invertebrate. Usually there's usually a, a number of them. So I made the mistake of recommending an elective necropsy. To, to find out what was wrong. And this owner just got very upset with me and, and was very concerned. And then she tried to tell me that this animal was, was lethargic and always go to the left. And I said, well, and it wasn't moving, obviously, because it was on. And we sat there and she made me sit there for 10 minutes and while she is reciting and, and giving verbal encouragement for this snail to move. 
And then we're both staring at it. And about six minutes later, she suddenly shouts, there it is, there it is, he's moving, he's moving. I couldn't perceive anything. But it just came back to me that that was a repressed memory that I've managed to bury for probably 18, 20 years. But you coming up with that story just kind of pulled it back to the front. So I've cured you. I've cured your repression. Uh, I'm not it's sure if it's a cure, but anyway, yeah. That's just fantastic. Oh, well. <laughs> Brilliant. Brilliant. Uh, snails, I don't think, have vestibular apparatus, do they? I mean... Well, I just, I mean, <laughs> I was lost for words. I mean, I'm not usually lost for words, but I'm like, you know, and I, and when she eventually went, I said to the reception staff, I said, you have got to give me a heads up when these things are coming in. I mean, if it's, you know, anything outside of the... I mean, I mean, we're talking about exotic pets, so everything is kind of outside the the ordinary. But I said anything that's just like way outside of left base or something that you need to give me a heads up. But anyway, that was surprising. Said, oh, I should tell you about the planaria one you've got there at five fifty. Right. <laughs> yeah, that's brilliant. Hey, Steve. Thanks a million. All right. You're going to go home and play Lego with you. Okay, I'm going to go. Yeah, well, I've actually got consoles to do. It's 5.30 in the US now, so I've still got work to do. But anyway, it was a pleasure to see you guys again. Hopefully, I'll meet you again at some conference in the future. And uh, stay healthy. Don't go and contract COVID or do anything stupid. And uh, I'll see you soon. See you soon. May your dog dog go with you, Steve. May your dog go with you, Steve. Thank you very much indeed. All right. Thank you. Bye-bye. Good night. Bye. Bye. (laughs) See you, mate. Cheers. Take care. Thanks, Cheers. Thanks so much for coming on. <laughs> oh, that was awesome. That was absolutely fantastic. Steve was absolutely brilliant. He was exactly what I thought he would be. Um, and more. But um, he was brilliant. He, he has developed a bit of a, an American twang, hasn't he? No, that's more like... Um, it's 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 more Australian than than American. Actually, you're right. Yeah, it is. It is, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. More sort of very slow. Yes. Yeah, absolutely, mate. But he, he's he's still the same old Steve, and it uh, it brought me back to twenty odd years ago at Eden's. Yeah. Brilliant. Yeah. Ah, uh, there was brilliant. Wasn't it? Yeah. <laughs>